Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. 62% of cases in Hamilton have been considered resolved with COVID-19, but even with that, we still have an outbreak in Mission Services and in as much house. Paul Johnson joins us with an update. Concerned Ontario doctors released another open letter to the Premier and Health Minister with regards to some serious concerns about how doctors are being compensated here in Ontario. We'll explain. And with everybody having to stay home and self-isolated during the pandemic, domestic violence calls have increased drastically. It's all coming up in just a couple of minutes. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's talk about the local situation. Another outbreak has been declared in Hamilton, but uh, 62% of cases in the city have now been considered resolved. And how are we going to go forward on this in this particular uh, instance here in this city? Paul Johnson joins us. He is the Director of Emergency Operations Center for the City of Hamilton. Morning, Paul. How are you today? I'm doing well, Bill. Good morning to you. Good weekend. Uh, I think everybody seemed to be behaving themselves to a certain extent. I don't know how many tickets we're going to find out were issued, but we'll get into that in just a little bit. Uh, we should mention, by the way, when we use the term outbreak, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean there's this mass spreading. This means there were some new cases at one particular uh, location. Is that right? Yeah, in terms of institutional outbreaks, it is a single case. Uh, we use the term outbreak, and, and really that is you know, a lot of ways to heighten the awareness of that institution to take every possible uh, precaution and infection control procedure they can in order to to halt that. But it does mean a single case. And so, uh, uh, you know, as as part of the city, we, we did have at Wentworth Lodge, one of our long-term care facilities, a single staff person uh, test positive, and that put us in outbreak. And that was a, a period of time where we monitored, did a lot of testing on people that have been in close contact, and, uh, of course, no other cases were found, and, and that uh, home came out of outbreak uh, at the end of uh, about 14 days or so. So it, it, does, it is a single case, or it could be multiple cases, uh, but I think that's important for the public to know. It does not mean that there's a home that we didn't know what was going on, and all of a sudden there's 10, 12, 50 cases going on. It can be a single case. Paul, is this – I'm not trying to – you know, ask you a crystal ball here with this. Is this the new normal that for the next while we're just going to hear about these things cropping up from time to time? Maybe not in the in the numbers that we saw five, six, seven weeks ago, but but it's not going away anytime soon. Well, yeah, I mean, we've done nothing to to eliminate the virus. Um, we certainly have done the right things to ensure that we did not overwhelm systems. Uh, that that there were such large numbers of people off that we couldn't deliver essential services, uh, that our healthcare system was overwhelmed with people, as you've seen in in, in other cities, including cities to the south of uh, of us in the United States. So we've done that work, but uh, we don't have an immunity that's been built in at a high enough level to say that um, you know this was six weeks of of this, and then it's we're not going to see this occur. The reality is in our congregate settings, long-term care facilities, emergency shelters, uh, group homes, uh, these these will always be on high alert because uh, they're on high alert for a lot of things. So flu season is tough in these environments. Uh, COVID is even tougher. And we need to make sure that uh, we realize that this will happen. You'll see clusters, uh, I'm sure, as we've seen in, in other jurisdictions across the country where businesses also have uh, some challenges and, and uh, need to take precautions around that. And that's why these guidelines that are starting to come out uh, will really dictate how all of us are going to work and, and interact, and certainly in the short term. But, you know, I think some of these things will be in place for a little bit longer than, than people are thinking. Well, 
there's one little harbinger here that I, keeps sticking in my head. And when I talk to some of the, uh, the, the, the health care providers in this community, they obviously have enacted a plan, and you're well aware of that. You're sitting at the table with them as they're talking about you know, Hamilton Health Sciences and St. Joe's, and as you mentioned, the long-term care facilities and everything. Uh, they're not standing down. It's, it's not as if they say, boy, the worst is over. Uh, let's just go play golf and let's go and do our shopping and everything. They're still anticipating that there, there's, there's a, a huge problem here. Uh, as a matter of fact, I know that there's still a contingency plan for extra beds just in case there's another wave, and we don't know if that's going to happen or when that's going to happen. No, we don't, and that's why, you know, the provincial government was very clear that we have to make sure that we still, at every step along the reopening uh, recovery plan, however people want to describe it, we need to be wary of a few things, and certainly our ability to uh, look at new cases and and that is one element of it. So that surveillance that happens. The other is the capacity of the healthcare system to deal with the the small portion of people who do get very sick, and unfortunately, uh, those who also uh, perish from this virus. And then the other piece is we have to have the ability to do very quick isolation and what they call contact tracing in the public health world, which is we need to when new cases arise be able to quickly check in with those that were in close contact with that individual and make sure that uh, we isolate because that is the way that we really keep this from becoming a bigger and bigger outbreak scenario. And as you say, that kind of stuff will happen um, for a long time until we have some other way of dealing with immunity, uh, be that through a vaccine or some other, uh, some other things that might go on. Yeah, there are a couple of things at play here, and I know that you've talked about this, as has Dr. Richardson, our medical officer of health, and, and they, they're, they're seeming to think, well, you know, the, the number of cases, it's, it's, there are still new cases, but it's not as significant, not as many as there were before. But, but the, the social distancing and the isolation is not going to beat the virus. It's simply stopping the virus from spreading. In other words, we're trying to stave off that wave until something, as you say, like a vaccine is going to come along, which still could be months, if not a year or so away. So uh, anybody who thinks that, okay, we can just open the shutters and everything's going to be just like it was six months ago is, is sadly mistaken. I think the things that you just talked about here, whether it's the gloves, the face masks, the social distancing, uh, lineups at some of the stores, that's not going to go away anytime soon, I would think. No, and, and I think really people have had a window into how life will work in many more settings by the essential services that are open and have been open uh, through this initial period of the, uh, the crisis portion of the, of the pandemic. So if you look at how you interact now when you shop for groceries, uh, when you go to uh, certain elements, uh, even when you go to a doctor's office uh, or some of these other service-type places, uh, the, the things that are in place today uh, are things that are going to stick around a little bit for, for a while. And if you read online the advice that the government is providing to various industries, it's very much in this way. How do you limit the number of people you interact with? How do you ensure that you're maintaining safe distances? How do you ensure that you're doing additional cleaning on what we call high-touch surfaces, doorknobs, counters, those types of things? And wherever possible, how do we just keep you know, the numbers of people down. So if you're in an office environment, can you stagger the work in different ways? Can some people continue to work from home for a much longer period? Uh, if you're in other types of business, can you stagger shifts? Uh, you know, can you look at some of your break areas and say, you know, maybe this break room is just too small and we need to close that off and do breaks in a different way or stagger breaks in some way. So those are all those things that are going to be in place. And 
those those are going to be in place you know in my estimation they're going to be in place for a little while i don't think that's something where it's two or three weeks of that and then we go back to something that we were more used to so with that in mind and and with the fact that yes okay i know we keep using that term flattening the curve and uh, to a certain extent it is flattened but it's not going down yet so there's still a lot out there there's still a lot of virus there's still uh, in hamilton's case 454 uh, cases right now that have been confirmed uh, and no vaccine uh, how comfortable are you with, with this process that's starting in Ontario today about starting to open some of these places up again to the public? Are, are you concerned that, that, that there's going to be a rush and that people are going to ignore things like social distancing? Uh, one of the worst things I think it could happen here, Paul, is if we start to ease up and start doing things again, and then all of a sudden there's a spike and we have to shut everything down once more. That's, that's, that, that would be very, very depressing, and, and, and I, I would think very tragic, I think, for an awful lot of those businesses. Well, it would be, and I'm very comfortable and, and confident as long as people follow the advice. I, the same way I'm very comfortable going and shopping for groceries today because uh, the grocery store that I choose to go to, um, man, they have very good things in place, and I can I feel very comfortable. Can we be 100% on these things? No. But can we be very comfortable? Yes. If people begin to say, well, I'm not going to do that, and, and I'm just going to take my chances, um you know, that's a problem. I think had the provincial government decided it was going to be a massive amount of opening all at once, um, that could have been a problem. But I think if you see this measured approach happening, and even in provinces, I hear people say to me, other provinces are way ahead. They're opening up a ton of things. But when I really look at it, they're they're doing similar type things. And it's not opening it up in the same way it was. Uh, lots of the same types of rules that we see in place today for businesses are being in place. Uh, you'll see those protections. And so I, I have some confidence that if people follow those directions and follow that guidance, um, that we can do as good a job as we can in terms of stopping this spread. Uh, we'll never stop at 100%, I don't think. Uh, I'm not a medical doctor or a public health official, but I think it's impossible to say that you have a way to stop the virus 100% without you know, having a huge other impact. We have to live our lives. Uh, and we can't um, we can't also ignore the fact that the life has to move on in some capacity. It's how we do that very safely. So as we move forward, and, and you hinted at this last week when you were on our program, uh, there are going to be some, well, let, maybe, let's call them baby steps. So, I mean, before we just say, okay, let's go, guys, uh, just open everything up. Uh, I would think uh, that, that outdoor facilities, open-air facilities, might be easier than, than some of the other ones. And we're, t- we're talking about some of the trails, of course, and conservation areas. And, well, of course, there's been a hue and cry for golf courses, so that might be on the list, too. Is that what you're leaning toward right now? Well, certainly that's what uh, the evidence shows from other jurisdictions that have gone through this earlier than us because they're... Um, their peak in the curve was earlier than ours as well. And so it is that type of, of open space is really important. It, pro- it produces a lower risk environment uh, as long as people exercise social distancing and can. So I think we can see that that is you know, where we might be headed. And then certain types of businesses that are set up well to, to, do, to do things in this different way. Uh, I think what's really everybody's saying are not happening in the, anytime in the near future are some of these large gatherings and so whether those are indoor events, whether those are outdoor events, uh, the, the desire to bring large numbers of people together to do all the kind of fun things we enjoy when the weather gets nicer, I think those are a little bit further out in our, in our future. Uh, we have to get there slowly but surely, but 
Um, you know, I think when you look at what happens around the world, you're quite right. It's some of those outdoor amenities that happen early on, um, selected workplaces, and the province has been pretty clear that it's a staged implementation of workplace opening, and that's going to be hard for people, but we, we have to do it in the right way. And then the other piece is you monitor your progress, and you, you don't jump to the next level until you're assured that, like we are now, feeling pretty good about some of the numbers that we have flattened this peak, we've elongated this curve, and uh, then you can move to the next stage. And I think if those are done well, but that is a discipline, Bill, and it is really hard. I heard you off your top, off the top talking about the fact that even with some amount of scaled reopening, there's a lot of businesses that are in trouble. So this is going to be, this is going to take a discipline and it's going to take some ongoing support that will allow people to move through these stages in a safe way because there are an awful lot of other things at play. We can't keep kids out of school forever. Uh, we can't keep businesses at uh, 25% of their, their usual level of business forever. Um, you know, we have to, to push towards that. So I, I think there's a lot at play, uh, which is going to challenge us over these coming weeks. How difficult is it then with that in mind? And I, I appreciate your dedication and the mayor's and, and Dr. Richardson uh, with the work that you guys are doing with the Emergency Operations Center. But with those economic realities in mind, is there more pressure than, than you might have thought for you to say, well, we've got to move forward on this anyway? Uh, because, there, there, as you say, some people's welfare and well-being are, is at stake here. Yeah, or do you, or, or do you just board. say, look at, because I know what the premier said, and I know what you guys have said in the past, that it's going to be based on medical evidence. But boy, I'm telling you, some people are saying, can we wait for that? Well, and that's why, you know, you have to start to move towards some things. And I, I think the timing is such that we're going to work, we're going to move towards that in, in the right timing. Uh, yeah, it's not just on the economic front and the business front either. Uh, there are some significant social and developmental pieces that are there. I talked about kids. Um, you know, and, uh, and certainly from um, the other sides of our lives, we need to get back to having people be able to uh, connect in with services and supports that they need, many of which are shuttered. And the other piece is, is we need, um, you know, our hospital system and our medical system to get back to doing some of the other types of medical work that has either been put on hold or people have been so fearful that they're not, they're not uh, attending to other types of health issues. There are tons of health issues still in our community today, Bill, that have nothing to do with COVID-19. And our worry is that those things, uh, if they're left unchecked or there aren't the access points for people, uh, that could lead to even more trouble. Yeah, I've talked to a number of folks uh, at uh, both Hamilton Sciences and St. Joe's, and they're very concerned about the uh, surgeries that have been canceled over the last couple of months and the backlog that's creating as well. Just one other thing to concern ourselves with. Paul Johnson, as always, Paul, thanks so much for the time and for the uh, the reassurance. Always great to get an update from you. Uh, Stay well. We'll talk again in a few days, I'm sure. You bet. Thanks a lot, Bill. Take care. Paul Johnson. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A group called Concerned Ontario Doctors this weekend released another open letter to the Premier and to Health Minister uh, here in Ontario in regards to their concerns about COVID-19 and the Ontario government's plan. Uh, they've been very outspoken about the, the things going forward and the way the government has handled this. And uh, to give us an update on this, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Clovinder Gill, who is the president of Concerned Ontario Doctors. Uh, Dr. Gill, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad we could join, uh, you could join us once again to talk about this. Thank you so much for having me. Maybe for, for those that uh, missed our first conversation a little while ago, let's uh, back up just a little bit and talk about the first letter and some of the concerns that you raised at that time as, as, as this started to unfurl. 
Absolutely. So on April the 14th, um, Concerned Ontario Doctors had sent out our first open letter to both Prime Minister Trudeau and to Premier uh, Ford, and it, w- and it was copied to um, all the MPs and the MPPs, all the healthcare bureaucrats and the um, provincial and the federal uh, public health officials. Um, and uh, we had um, laid out our concerns at that time about the governments um, of both levels, about their preparedness and their and their emergency response um, to COVID-19. And we had given very detailed recommendations spanning 15 key areas that we um, felt were crucial for the government to find a safe path forward and to save as many lives as possible. Uh, within 24 hours of that letter, we had received a response um, from the federal health minister's um, office, and within 72 hours of that letter, we had met with the um, senior policy um, director and the senior policy advisors for the federal health minister um, um, to uh, to discuss our concerns, and they continued to follow up with us. Um, however, um, just as all of our other correspondence with this government over the nearly past two years, we have still heard absolutely nothing from either Premier Ford or from Health Minister Christine Elliott. So we sent a second letter to them um, on May 1st, which coincided with National Physicians Day and Doctors Day. Um, and this was focusing on our concerns about their abuse of frontline physicians because that day um, was um, probably the worst um, Doctors' Day and National Physicians' Day for Ontario physicians in our history um, because even during a pandemic, it's unconscionable the amount of abuse that the provincial government is putting frontline physicians through at this time when we're trying to do everything as an essential service to protect our patients. And um, that letter um, expressed four areas of key concern that frontline physicians have about the government's abuse um, of doctors and, and in turn abuse of patients and, and key actions that need to be taken right away. Maybe you could show in some detail anyway just what some of those concerns are. Uh, and and uh, can we use uh, the, well, pretty strong language? I mean, to say that, that the doctors or physicians are being abused by uh, government policies uh, is, is pretty strong language. Maybe explain exactly why you use that particular word and, and how it applies to, to the letter. Absolutely. So we're in an un- unprecedented pandemic. Um, and uh, and uh, for the governments to continue to say that we never had a blueprint for this is just oh, disingenuous because um, um, all governments, uh, including our federal government, actually had an emergency preparedness plan um, spanning nearly 14 years um, since um, SARS. And, uh, and, and Ontario had first-hand experience with SARS, with the most um, uh, deaths, um, and, and cases outside of Asia um, occurring here in the GTA. And um, our first concern was breach of contract. Even during a pandemic, um, the government has been withholding physicians' wages. Um, they started virtual care uh, codes, which became effective on April 14th, just a few days before um, oh, the provincial lockdown had them started. And so in good faith, Physicians had started providing essential patient care to physicians um, to their patients with chronic non-COVID illnesses um, that still need management during a pandemic through virtual care. 
and and physicians haven't been paid. Um, they had submitted oh, their billings uh, at the end of March, um, and and all of them came back rejected. And the ministry claims that uh, they supposedly can't program a few simple um, codes, um, and uh, which is unfathomable because no other jurisdiction in in Canada has had any any disruption in either patient care or in of or in a physician payment, and so. When physicians' billings become rejected by the government for patient care already provided and they're illegally withholding wages, um, that has a tremendous um, um, uh, impact in terms of the viability of the community clinics. And so we've seen um, um, a clinics closing during a pandemic when they're needed the most. Um, because there's no funding uh, to provide for the costs of overhead covering everything for rent and staff wages um, um, or, to, um, or to all of the other um, medical supplies. And on top of the breach of contract, um, physicians still don't have personal protective equipment. And so the government continues to, to send its um, um, frontline doctors in, in tremendous harm's way uh, without the personal protective equipment that they need uh, to not only protect themselves from the COVID-19 infection, but to prevent um, them submitting it, um, actually tr- transmitting it asymptomatically to patients that they may be providing care for. And it's tremendously alarming that nearly 15% of all COVID-19 infections now here in Ontario are amongst frontline healthcare workers. Mm-hmm. And um, there has been no effort by this government to provide PPE to doctors practicing within communities. And, and the PPE within hospitals continues to be heavily rationed. Another third concern that we had was about physician mental health. Uh, we knew uh, that even before this pandemic, um, doctors had the highest suicide rate uh, amongst any profession. And, and this government is touting mental health supports, but it's completely neglecting to acknowledge that um, physicians actually get punished by our regulatory college if we seek mental health care. And so that's a huge barrier for physicians to be able to access the desperately needed um, health care that they need because our colleges don't recognize mental health and physical health as being equal. And so it then threatens the livelihood of physicians. So we're urging this government to follow the lead of other countries and to support physicians that need mental health support as opposed to punish those or those doctors. And lastly, our concern was about the ongoing misrepresentation and um, malrepresentation of doctors by the Ontario Medical Association, where this government continues to force doctors to be a part of this undemocratic and unaccountable organization. And it's the only jurisdiction in Canada that forces physicians to still pay $54 million annually in forced dues. Um, so even while physicians are not being paid by the government, um, are not being provided with any supports, we're still being forced to pay this unaccountable entity. And I should um, acknowledge the fact that other jurisdictions in Canada have been tremendously supportive of their physicians. So you have oh, British Columbia, um, Saskatchewan, Newfoundland, Quebec, Nova Scotia, they have not only been paying their physicians on time, they have created 
income um, stabilization, infrastructure stabilization plans because they acknowledge and recognize uh, that there's a tremendous need to support frontline physicians during this pandemic to keep clinics open to provide those essential patient services. And and Ontario had a SARS uh, income um, stabilization plan in 2003. So we're calling on this government to step up and not only um, uh, provide essential supports in terms of um, mental health supports and PPE and and um, independent representation, but also to ensure physicians are paid timely, fairly, um, with with their contract honored, while also providing stabilization. Now, I want to be cool. a lot to unpack here, and I'm glad you were so precise about this because I want people to have an understanding as to what's going on here. Uh, because this is, as you mentioned, this is unique to Ontario uh, as opposed to what some other provinces are doing. Uh, so these are services that have already been provided. and Because uh, a lot of folks, doctor, may be under the impression right now that, well, everything in healthcare is shut down except primary care hospitals and long-term care facilities. But there are people that are dealing with other issues besides COVID-19. Uh, and I know that your profession, you don't want to abandon those people. There's still work that needs to be done. A lot of that work, from what you're telling us, has been done. And now the Ontario government is, is refusing to acknowledge that and refusing to pay the doctors for what they've done. Is that, is that the sense of it? Absolutely. So they created uh, codes um, um, to start to bill for these virtual care visits because specialists and family doctors are still running clinics every single day. We're still seeing patients every single day because um, those non-COVID um, patient illnesses haven't stopped. So instead of seeing patients within clinic settings for those non um um, um, for those patients where they're able to see patients for the time being or virtually that's being done. So either via phone or by, or by video to manage, um, seizure disorders, to manage asthma, to manage, um, high blood pressure, diabetes, um, um, uh, to go over, uh, concerns that parents might have about their infant's health, et cetera. So there's, um, uh, health care never stops. So, so that has been ongoing um, since the pandemic started. And these um, virtual clinic visits are so crucial to actually uh, alleviate uh, pressures onto our hospital systems. And, and that's what community physicians, specialists, and, and, and family doctors have been doing in good faith. Uh, what this government um, failed to do was just uh, allow doctors, as other jurisdictions within Canada have, to use existing billing codes. And that would have allowed for a seamless transition. But instead, they created new billing codes, which they claim they can't program, which is unfathomable. Um, I, don't, I, I don't buy that. I mean, look, at, I'm not a computer geek by any stretch of the imagination. But this sounds like this was a conscious decision they made to simply not acknowledge the codes. And, and uh, you know, the, the, the radical thing that they're doing here, obviously, it smacks again of cost cutting as opposed to, you know, the best interest of the people in the medical profession. Other provinces have done this very same thing. I mean, if they had said, I'm sorry, our code, we, we don't recognize that, simply reapply but use this code so you can get the money. I mean, that would have been a simple thing to do. It seems to me as if that's a lame excuse for not wanting to pay the doctors at all. Yes. And so physicians on the front lines have seen a dramatic 80 to 100% decline in their income. And I should mention that 40 to 60% of that income goes towards infrastructure. So physicians are essential in providing healthcare infrastructure. So all of the healthcare infrastructure you see outside of hospitals are funded by physicians through their OHIP billings. 
And so physicians within community clinics have not been paid um, since, um, uh, have not had their actual billings since February. And, 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 and so many of these clinics are not viable anymore. There's, there's no income coming in to be able to continue to pay for the staff and, and to pay for the infrastructure. That's, and that's a very germane point too, Doctor. And I know we've talked about this in the past when there have been contract negotiations going on between the, the province and, and doctors. But it, it's bearing, it bears repeating, I think, that uh, outside of a hospital setting, uh, doctors' offices, the equipment that's used in doctors' offices, uh, all of that stuff—that's paid for by the doctor. The, the government does not give anybody that stuff. So, if you're not making money and you're not having ed, uh, revenue coming in, how do you pay those bills? Absolutely, and 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 COVID nineteen will have many ways to this pandemic. So we're we're currently within the first wave, but <clears throat> research shows that there will be multiple waves, and then research also shows that within those secondary tertiary waves, it will be the non-COVID chronic care patients that will be suffering the most because their health care needs will be um, uh, considered to be second degree by governments. And and already in the first wave, we're already seeing that happening from the Ontario government, while other jurisdictions have continued to fund essential uh, non-COVID Healthcare for patients to ensure that that we continue to have a healthy population going forward. Ontario hasn't done that, and so uh, once we get through the first wave, we'll 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 be worse off than we were at the beginning of the pandemic, simply because this government has 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 allowed healthcare infrastructure to deteriorate and and for clinics to close. So we are we we are already seeing thousands of orphaned patients. Um, then. Oh, then we had oh, back in March before the actual lockdown started because this government is not providing any sort of stabilization or support for infrastructure within communities. And that's, a, that's an obligation that it has to do because physicians in good faith have been um, keeping their clinics open. They, they in good faith have been providing patient care, um, um, honoring the contract and honoring the codes that the government told us to use. Um, and, and now this government needs to step up and it needs to fulfill not only its legal, legal obligation to physicians, but it needs to treat physicians as respected partners. There's many aspects of COVID-19 which this government is failing on tremendously and it's risking patients' lives. There's critical aspects both scientifically and, and, and on the medical forefront that we could be doing in terms of battling COVID-19, which we're not doing and which other nations um, uh, across the world are effectively implementing. So we, we still don't understand, we don't comprehend why during such a deadly a pandemic, um, this government continues to treat frontline physicians as, as, as an enemy, as opposed to embracing us as partners and utilizing the medical knowledge that we have to actually save lives. It's completely unconscionable got a minute or so left here doctor i wanted to clarify something as well you mentioned that uh the, you sent letters to the federal government as well and they were a receptive and b seemed uh, somewhat uh, sympathetic to what was going on here but this has got to be settled at the provincial level doesn't it i mean the funding for health care is is delivered by provincial government so yes. Qu- queen's park has to be active here that's all there is to it absolutely and and other 
jurisdictions, as I mentioned, Quebec, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, Saskatchewan, have been tremendously supportive of their physicians. They've been paying them timely. They've been uh, uh, paying them hazard pay. They've been providing them with PPE. They have um, provided them with income stabilization, right, to, to ensure the viability of the healthcare infrastructure that exists to ensure that patient needs continue to be met. And that's what we need to see from this government, as opposed to these empty platitudes of simply calling um, us healthcare heroes. On on National Doctors' Day, there was a a light campaign um, uh, where apparently a one second of a flashing light is is all physicians are worth in terms of putting our lives on the line without PPE to ensure the safety um, and and protect the lives of our patients. And it's a tremendous slap in the face of physicians, and it's a, a, a complete abuse of not only patients, but of doctors as well. Well, I mean, you know, we, we acknowledge the frontline heroes, and we talk about that all the time, and justifiably so, that are working in, in ERs and, and facilities all over the country these days trying to do what they can. But uh, as you say, there's a long, long list of people that have non-COVID conditions that also need care, and uh, they know, they, we can't abandon them, and the government has to understand that and understand the work that needs to be done. I, I wish you luck with this, uh, Doctor. Please keep us posted as to what kind of, if any, response you do get from the provincial government. But I do appreciate the time today to bring this uh, this very important uh and subject to the national attention anyway and see if we can get some response from queen's park thank you again for this stay well and hopefully we'll talk again soon thank you so much for having me take care that's a dr govinda gill of course who was the president of concerned ontario doctors you're listening to the bill kelly show podcast on 900 chml i want to talk about something that is well as we're finding out now part and parcel with pandemics and things of this nature uh, we've known that for some time in, when studying past pandemics about what happens. Uh, we saw this happening apparently uh, in China and in France and in Spain and just about every other country that seemed to proceed, precede us when it came to the spread of COVID-19, and that is domestic violence. It is up significantly. Uh, the numbers are quite frightening. And uh, late last week on Friday, Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland uh, spoke about this. In 2019... According to the Canadian Femicide Observatory for Justice and Accountability, 118 women and girls died violently in Canada. On average, one every three days. That's uh, eye-opening, to say the least. Domestic violence calls have increased significantly uh, right here in this area, too, uh, in the Hamilton-Burlington area. to uh, get into further details about this and how this is having an impact, let's uh, bring Alma Arguello in. She's the Executive Director of Savas of Halton. Alma, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Thank you so much for having me again. I really appreciate it. Well, because the numbers just aren't getting any better. As a matter of fact, the anticipation is, as bad as those 2019 numbers were, uh, with this pandemic and with the isolation that's been inflicted, I guess, on an awful lot of people, those numbers are bound to go up. Absolutely. And we know for a fact that the numbers have um, are more are much much higher than that because you also have women who have not been able to report. Um, most of the numbers that are that they are being reported are other uh, numbers that shelters are putting forward or police that the increase of police calls that have been gone dispatched due to domestic violence. Women disproportionately bear the brunt of coronavirus. Uh, at- crises and pandemics of this nature. This is not a new phenomenon, is it? Absolutely no. I think that 
now uh, this COVID kind of era that we're in, it shows the cracks on the system and the, and the neglect that it has not been properly funded. And it shows that shelters and, social, and sexual assault centers, um, frontline agencies that do this type of gender-based violence have never been funded properly. And now it, it's starting to really, really show in a pandemic. Um, domestic violence has increased and it shows its ugly head as its own pandemic. And we know that for a fact that even uh, uh, crimes against um, women has increased, violence has increased, uh, in, especially also with children. Um, we know that isolating, that that's exactly what abusers want, right? So we have surely has given, we have been giving the whole situation in a silver platter and say, here you go, stay with your abuser. Um, and you throw in their child care, you throw in their income loss, you, sh- you throw in their precarious future of financial uh, instability or stability, you, you throw in their substance use, and it's almost the perfect storm. And the more messages we put up there, like you need to stay home, you need to stay home, it really it creates, there's a psychological, there's an emotional uh strain on the person who's experiencing this type of violence because they feel that they can't leave. I want to talk about that isolation in more detail if we could, Emma. That's a great point because as, as you've explained to us in the past, one of the main tools or weapons, I suppose, that abusers will use uh, on spouses is isolation. They, they want to cut them off from their friends, from their relatives. They, they don't want them talking to them. They don't want anybody getting opinions from them. Well, well, we've got this isolation here because of COVID-19. As you mentioned, that's that's handing them one of those tools. And then, here, you've got to stay in that house, everybody. You can't leave. There's nowhere else to go. So where do they do? What do they, where do they go? What can they do? It's really hard, and it's very difficult for a lot of women because some women were, or some survivors, because they should not just paint everybody, but some survivors uh, would go to work as a form of respite, mm-hmm. would go to school as a form of respite. Um, now, or they would go social volunteering as a form of respite and where, or, or support groups. Now, none of that is happening. And we know for a fact that uh, abusers like to completely isolate uh, their victims. Some of them, we have had some reports through our crisis line that the most that they can use is the phone because he's around or they are around. Uh, the most be, they are not allowed to go online, for example. So even finding resources, you won't be able to find them. Um, or if they're talking to the family, they're always around. Uh, we have heard of abusers that take away their phones, right? So women are not necessarily asking for help. Um, so we know, isolate, it, we have given them, this is really easy for you uh, to continue and perpetuate the, the abuse and assault to the women and children that you're staying with. Uh, we know for a fact that a lot of women that are experiencing this, this type of assault and abuse some stay because they 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 hear that there's nowhere to go in, um, because shelters are full of capacity. Uh, you still need to ask for help. You still you should still call if you can. If you have five minutes, we have if you, if you talk to your neighbor. Some of the calls that we're getting are are, are from survivors, but we're also getting calls from neighbors and family members that they haven't seen uh, an individual for a while. They or they feel that there's that there's something funny or fishy going on in the house. So as community right now in this COVID era, 
just neighbors are calling out and saying something is wrong with this family or things are not the same or she's not coming out or the kids are not coming out outside. So, yes, there's an isolation, but also as a community, we do have a moral obligation to report this as well. Well, and therein lies the problem and the responsibility, I guess. I mean, you know, yes, we're self-isolating, but you know your neighbors a lot of the time anyway. I know there's some some concerns about that these days, but, you know, if if you've seen them going out with the kids, you've seen them going to the store, and you don't see that anymore, you have to be concerned. Another factor that uh, that I read in these reports that uh, that I wanted you to also touch on, as as bad as the isolation is for for abusers who are, are inclined to do this sort of thing, uh, it's it's exacerbated by the fact that apparently we're being told now by experts that there's an awful lot of substance abuse going on d- during this isolation, which I guess is is only fueling that fire. Correct. We know f- um, because there's a uh, also with isolation, um, in the, in especially in some families who have experienced income loss in precarious future financial, um, the accessibility to um, substance misuse is there and. That has been again an increase that we uh, we have heard through our crisis line. Um, also, we have heard an increase on physical or forms of weapons that are being used about women. That has been also an increase in um, in some areas like Toronto and North York, and I know in Hamilton as well. That also we have heard through our crisis line. So that has that has its own issues and where someone cannot even ask for support anymore, right? And we know for some of the groups that have been moved into an online realm, that has also been difficult because if he, a lot of the women are saying he doesn't want to get help and or if I mention it, he gets really um, upset and aggravated and I'm afraid for my own. So even... That has become an issue. Um, we know for a fact that some children, like children that have called crisis line with its child's uh, children's network, or they have called crisis lines, uh, they, that's something that they say is that there is alcohol in the family, that there is some other substance misuse, and, and that scares them. But right now, again, it goes back to the issue that this isolation has shown a huge pandemic, which is is the violence against women pandemic that we have always had in this country. But now we have been able to see it, what it is actually doing to more women uh, in our communities. Alma, you raised a very good point. Now, if uh, anybody who's listening to this right now uh, is in a situation like this or knows somebody who may be in a situation like this, there is help. Even though, yes, we've all heard the stories that the shelters are full and we all know that the court system is essentially shut down, but there is still legal assistance and there is still legal advice that's out there if they choose to go down that road. And even if they don't, there is other advice that can be given. I mean, that phone call that you just talked about is still key and still, if at all possible, should be made. Absolutely. Neighbors, I mean, because lately we, some of us have gone for walks, you know, or you, if you feel like you haven't heard from a friend, for friend or a family member in a while, and you know that person is with someone that is not necessarily, is not a healthy relationship, even if you just call the crisis, call any crisis line and just find out. Like our crisis line is 905-875-1555. You know, and just say, you know what, something's fishy because we are able to give you information, be able to support you, even to be able to support that person. Even if it's just a doorknob knock and you feel like your friend, your neighbor, your family member is not okay, 
then we're able to, that crisis line, my crisis line, or any crisis line that you're able to call, we're able to be able to support you, to be able to provide that information and support that you need to that, to whoever is experiencing this type of violence. Well, and to the legal point, if people decide to go down that road, and that's not the, the choice that everyone makes, but if they do, uh, notwithstanding the fact that essentially the court system is on hold right now, as everything else seems to be these days, but I'm told that uh, legal counsel still is available and still can bring forward urgent motions for support uh, to get something done, which includes things like custody for children, uh, even to get a family lawyer to pursue that. And again, that's that's one option if, in fact, that's what you want to do. But if somebody is entertaining that idea and thinking that may be the only way out, uh, you don't have to wait until this whole thing is over. You can do something about it now if you so choose. That's absolutely correct. Also, in Halton region, there is an agency called the Women's Center. And the Women's Center has volunteer lawyers, family lawyers, who have volunteered their time over this COVID and horrible crisis that we're going through to be able to support women so they could exit properly, so they could exit and they could get this legal support when they need it. So... Please be advised that, that if you're finding situations like this or if you know of situations like this, uh, this uh, we were just talking about you know the, the self-isolation and we want people and encouraging people to stay in touch with their friends and, and their relatives by email, by phone call, whatever the case might be. And certainly in a circumstance like this, Alma, it's, it's I think imperative that we reach out to people like that and, and let them know that, look, at, you know, we're here for you. Uh, decide what you want to do and, and, and a call to something like Savas could be that first step uh, to finding what possible solutions could be. Correct. We all have an, we all have a we all have the ability if someone who is experiencing and hearing this and you feel like I can't make that call, can you make a call to a friend that will be able to facilitate some of that information for you and be able to help you navigate this? It's not easy right now, uh, but there is. If, you, if someone is in danger, you still get out. Yes, the shelters are at capacity, but some shelters are using hotels and where women could go and self-isolate with their children and be safe. There are options there, and there are facilities that they can and, and should call in circumstances like this. And, and that's the message I think we want to, to send off to people right now, that there are ways that they can do this. You don't have to put up with this. You don't have to tolerate this. And uh, th there have been tragic circumstances uh, as a result, and I know there are an awful lot of people that, that are looking for that option and looking for that way out, and, and that's certainly the way it's going to happen. So uh, it's, as always, Alma, a pleasure to have you back on the program to talk about this. Uh, it's, it's a sad, sad subject, but it's a reality in our society these days, and it's also seemingly a reality that in pandemic situations where we're all in isolated situations that uh, it seems to spike considerably and uh, we just want people to know if they're involved in something like that that there are people out there uh, like Savas and so many others as, as we say in, in well you know the program of course don't be a bystander and this more than any other time is maybe a great way to remind people of that that don't be a bystander if you see something uh, say something you don't have to confront people but you can talk to them and give them some advice that's absolutely it. You could give them some advice. Let them let the information in their hands, and um, they you will be able to see that a lot of the women that some of the women that even that have exit with the support line that we have been able and the information that we have been able to give them is because it was a, some some because a family member or a friend noticed that they haven't not talked and they they knew that they were not necessarily in a healthy relationship and they did a doorknob and they went to talk to that individual and will be able to exit. In support this is the time um, you never know who needs help but as a family member and a friend or a neighbor 
we all know how people have been doing pre-COVID and what COVID is doing to us. It's, it's, it has taken not only an emotional and psychological toll, but it's do, not every home is safe for women to isolate with their, own, with their children. So please, if you, have, if you know someone or if you feel someone or if you just have a hunch, call. You can, by the way, if you're listening right now and you don't have access to the phone number again, we'll give it in a second, but you can just, you can Google Savis of Hamilton, of Halton, rather, S-A-V-I-S of Halton, yeah. and, the and that number, number will be there. phone number is 905-875-1555. Excellent. Again, Alma, thank you so much for this. We'll stay in touch. Thank you so much for having me. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.